This is Impact, the daily look at how we are coping with the coronavirus in Nevada. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Wait, 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 wait. Not this music. Not today. Today is Memorial Day. I have to confess that I never cared one way or the other about Memorial Day except as a harbinger of summer or the end of summer, Memorial Day, Labor Day, whatever. I read the numbers every day on this show and they have always gone up, mostly by a lot, lately less each day, but still up. Last night I ran by the district to get some takeout. It was busy, like a regular spring holiday weekend. Only a few people were wearing masks. One couple walked up to each other right in front of me. Hi, I haven't seen you in a while. And then they hugged. Much has been made this weekend of that 100,000 number we are approaching. 100,000 deaths in the U.S., 1.7 million cases and counting. On March 18th, when we first started the show, Nevada had 536 cases and no deaths. Just 14 days before, Nevada had 41 cases. Today, we are close to passing the 8,000 case mark with over 400 deaths. In Nevada, that number is not necessarily atypical with the number of people who usually die. We have over 400 deaths each year by firearms. In 2017, of course, that was at least 58 more people than usual. But the Wall Street Journal reports that by mid-April of this year, total deaths in the U.S. were 30% higher than normal. And yet, we are not walking around shell-shocked as we were after 9-11 or October 1st or Sandy Hook. We are hugging people we haven't seen in a while and celebrating the holiday weekend like nothing has changed. But everything has changed. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start with one of the writers of a piece I mentioned on Friday's show, an L.A. Times piece on the lack of mourning over the death toll brought by the coronavirus. Eli Stokels is a White House reporter for the L.A. Times. Eli, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So um, you mentioned, you start out with this with this piece that you wrote last week, mentioning the space shuttle, mentioning Vietnam, mentioning Pearl Harbor, and our collective grieving in all of those incidents. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Sandy Hook and 9-11. Even in Las Vegas, October 1st of 2017, uh, we were all walking around shell-shocked, but we're not shell-shocked now. What's the difference? Well, 
Um, I mean, that's really a question that we tried to answer in this piece, or at least to talk about. I don't know that there that we arrived at a a clear answer. Um, I think broadly, uh, look, the atomization of the the country uh, culturally, politically, that is a big piece of this. Uh, the country's reliance on images and spectacle mm. uh, in terms of how we process events uh, and news and the fact that this is a fairly unique situation in that we can see it on the news all day long but what we see is a box in the corner of the screen that has a, a number right. um, and these deaths have been turned into a statistic all these deaths um, for you know they are taking place uh, in private rooms uh, if you live in a part of the country that hasn't been hit by this yet, uh, it's even more far away. Um, and even people that we talk to who live in New York City in the epicenter of this, uh, people who have remained healthy talked about uh, how the death even there has still seemed abstract because you wake up, you're in your own apartment, uh, you get your food delivery, and everything seems kind of fine. And it's just very hard to to envision this to comprehend this even over the weekend a lot was made of the new york times very powerful sunday front page mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that the newspaper just chose to list to fill the front page and several other full full pages with the names of a thousand people um who died and a snippet of biography uh, their age, something about who they were. Uh, and it was amazing because if you read that, you, I think it stoked your curiosity about who these people were. Maybe there were a few names in there um, that jumped out at you who were people who are a little more known. Ellis mm -hmm. Marsalis right. in New Orleans, the musician was one. But, you know, for the most part, these are anonymous people. And then if you step back from that and you think, geez, a thousand names in the paper is so overwhelming and powerful. And then you think that's one one hundredth of the death toll so far. You recognize that just yesterday when that newspaper was printed and when it showed up in people's driveways, um, at least a thousand more people died. Right. And so it's just really staggering. And it's almost something that is, uh, I think, for a lot of people, just so painful. It is it is hard to to process and think about uh, death on such a scale. Um, and so I think all of those things, um, you know, are unique to this situation. Um, but, you know, we're also sort of looking at why there hasn't been a sort of national coming together. Uh, obviously, lots of people, uh, even those who have not been directly affected and lost loved ones, a lot of people are mourning in their own way. And that grief is also private, because we're not allowed to come out of our houses and, and see each other. There are no vigils in Union Square Park, uh, as I saw after 9-11 in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people are not posting images of people's faces who have been lost all around town. Um, dignitaries are not going to funerals. Uh, those funerals are not being broadcast. Uh, and so a lot of the grief has also, you know, I think it exists, but it exists uh, in private mostly also. And... You know, that's just a, a really sort of unique thing. It's hard to know how this is affecting people, uh, but it certainly does feel surreal um, when you think about the one of the people that we talked to uh, for the story, a grief expert said, you know, this is the equivalent 
of 12 737s crashing every day. Mm -hmm. And you think about the the news coverage and the response that that one plane crash when it happens evokes, uh, you know, in in all of us. Um, And to think about the equivalent of 12 happening in every day for going on more than two months, you know, again, it's just really hard to to imagine that and to, to think about um, loss on that sort of a scale. And we don't have the plane crashes. You don't have the scenes that the cameras can, you don't can have shoot the and show this to you. And I think that is a huge piece of, um, you know, beyond the politics and atomization, that's a major reason why it's just this has been a harder thing, I think, for people to conceptualize. So you bring up something. So you bring up something here that uh, I have had issue with in terms of us, us, we journalists for a long time. We don't seem to be able to uh, discuss things that are important unless they have a visual, unless it's a great piece of sound. Uh, Andy Warhol, no, it wasn't Andy Warhol. It was uh, Mar- uh, um, McLuhan uh, who said the medium is the message. Right. And, and, I, and I believe that that's very true. Like if it doesn't, if it doesn't have a great visual, it's not going to go on TV. If it uh, uh, doesn't have a great piece of sound, it's likely not going to go on to a public radio show. Um, that's, that's sort of like how we have been trained. But there is a lot that we miss because I, maybe because I'm, I'm exploring whether this is our failing because we don't know how to, to talk about what isn't tangible. Does that make right. sense? And I think, you know, I think that's still the case. I mean, I think the, the New York Times front page uh, affected people. And it wasn't that it affected people as much intellectually, but it was the visual of seeing an entire front page of tiny print filled up with names and those names being just a fraction right. um, of the people that we've lost from this. And so you're right, you know, for better or for worse, we are accustomed to uh, responding to images Um, to spectacle and to controversy and to conflict and you know in a war when people are dying um, you know there's a common enemy that's that at times unites the country uh, and there are ways for people to explain these deaths as though you know these deaths happen for a reason we can you know we can choose to believe this or not but we are told that those deaths happen for the sake of the country and for the, you know, the, the, to keep our, you know, to preserve our freedom, obviously the, the reasons that governments have for going into uh, military conflicts are often more complex than the, the narratives that they deliver to the public. But, but we have some thing that we can sort of lock into and we can decide, you know, whether or not uh, those are politically justified or not, but we can always mourn for those individuals who are coming home uh, in body bags from war because they died fighting for our country. That so, is not that is not debatable. And this is right. This doesn't. This lacks that also. And so it just it, it's um, it's not just the lack of images, but it's also right. This and, and and you have messages from a lot of people who initially tried to downplay this, saying, "Well, this is just uh, like the yes. flu. This is no you know old, old people look. People are going to die anyway." And so. Um, you know, and, and on some level, that is true, right? On some level, 
um, the people, you know, if this has disproportionately impacted older people, it's true that's because their their bodies, their immune systems are more compromised. It's true they are closer, most likely, to death than than people who are 30 or 40 years younger. Um, and so, on some level, even though it's um, sort of astonishing to hear that from uh, politicians, on some level, it's also true that um, you know a lot of these people. Um, you know, people do die from from the flu and from other viruses. And, and um, you know, so the messaging with this has just been different. Right. Also. Right. I was just going to get to that, actually. If we had a leader of our country who who like Angela Merkel, who came, uh, brought her people together and uh, and spoke to them about their need to take care of each other as well as themselves, would this look any different here in the U.S.? That's a that's a great question, and you know I think that um, look we've seen we've seen leadership like that um, at the state level in this country. Mm. We have seen a governor in Ohio, the Republican Mike DeWine. He's sitting at eighty something plus approval because he's had a he's had a response that has just been driven by data and science and public health and the politics have been taken completely out of it um and he has support from you know P democrats and republicans in a state that is obviously very uh closely divided politically and contested every four years uh in the presidential election and so it tells you that there are people in this country who can respond to that and that there may be a desire um, for that. Um, I think the, it's just not, uh, you know, I've covered, uh, I've covered Donald Trump since 2015, since, you know, I didn't, I wasn't there when he came down the escalator, <laughs> but I've been covering his campaign, uh, and his presidency, uh, for a long time. And, you know, I can just tell you, and I think this won't be earth shattering news to anybody who, you know, is paying attention. Donald Trump kind of just is going to behave a certain way mm. he's not going to change he's uh he's not going to he, he can't really put the the grievance aside he can't see this uh, as a story that does not involve him in a starring role uh and he just you know he has responded to so much of this um as if it is a referendum on himself um and you know to the extent that uh we have focused more on the president, on his statements, on his actions, on his daily briefings when he was doing them every night. Right. Um, you know, that has also taken attention away from the bigger picture of all of this death because that is, you know, as a media, it's not just that we're drawn to images and to sound bites, but right, tradition in, the, in, in Washington, certainly in the press corps, in a very large press corps, right, there are probably more people covering the White House and Congress in Washington than you know, are employed as journalists in, mo in, in most entire states and maybe in most regions. Mm. There's just so many people here and our news is so nationalized and all of us are in this pattern of if the president says or does something, like we're all going to tweet it, we're all going to write it, we're all going to respond to it. And we just have gotten accustomed to reporting everything that happens in this presidency. And granted, it is a newsworthy presidency with a uh, compelling character, right? That certainly satisfies the need for sound bites and for TV images and mm. all these things. Um, but we are just in this behavioral pattern of when he does something, that's what we all focus on. And I just think that, you know, obviously there's been great reporting 
um, you know, at small local outlets in many states and at, you know, big national papers like the New York Times or Washington Post or the LA Times, where we have gone out and we have gotten away from that, right? It's not, that's not exclusively what we're all focused on, but we focus on it an awful lot. And I think telling victim stories and broadening this out and giving people a better sense of, look, this is a story and this is a virus that just politics, you know, it's indifferent to politics. Um, and these messages about public health uh, are not political messages. Wearing a mask is not a political thing. Mourning the dead is not a political thing. This is something that, um, you know, in, in a different time has united people across uh, geographical and political and cultural lines. And we're seeing less of that. Uh, and I think a lot of that is because we're seeing this as a story about this administration. Uh, and that reflects a lot of the coverage that we do and we contribute to that. Um, but I just think that a lot of people who, you know, you're seeing protests mm -hmm. at state capitals, uh, you're seeing people uh, not just not wear masks, but go, you know, and I, I think this is probably a small minority that we've just seen some videos of news reports of, but, you know, you're seeing people not just not wearing masks, attacking people for wearing masks, right. um, questioning the validity of the numbers and the death numbers. Um, and I think a lot of those people, they have taken their cues from the president who, you know, he has made the recitations of uh, mourning from the podium, from different events. He has said repeatedly that one person lost is too many. But that has not been his only message or his central message. And he has muddled that message by saying so many things about, you know, criticizing governors who have decided that they're not ready to reopen, right. um, you know, and, and, and refusing himself uh, to wear a mask in public uh, to the point that it becomes a storyline in and of itself and sends the message to a lot of people, um, especially supporters of the president, they don't need to wear a mask. And okay. So I think. So I want to interrupt yeah, so you here. Why can't, I guess, the, the broadcast networks, like Fox News aside, um, mm -hmm. Why can't the broadcast networks say, hey, we're not going to cover these live briefings anymore or the cable networks, I should say, um, and, and we're not going to make all of our stories about the president. Uh, we're going to make our stories about the science and what people are going through. I mean, these are your colleagues. It, it, are they even open to that suggestion? Do they talk about it amongst themselves or is this just kind of like a nope, this is our job? Well, a lot of it is sort of, you know, look, my job is to cover the White House and put my head down, do my job. And when they tell me to go, you know, if you're a network correspondent, if they say, hey, you got to hit at 10 a.m., you got another hit at one, you got to hit at four and you got to hit it, you know, like th that's your day. You just kind of go through the day, you operate, you get the news, you report the news. Um, there is a there is a presentism in in news and in broadcast news, especially um, where you're just reacting to what's breaking and what's new mm. and it's hard to step back and to say what are we doing uh there's not a lot of introspection sometimes in the news cycle because the news cycles are so short-lived they almost don't exist anymore mm -hmm. you're just in a sort of constant uh you know present on on cable news and that's certainly how the president operates right this is a person who's never going to care 
about the clip you play of him saying something completely self-contradicting, even if he said it five minutes earlier, because he's just always in the present. It's like he's always live. You know, it's the Truman Show presidency. And so <laughs> that is part of it. Um, and I think, you know, it is there's also separate from that, just this debate that we do have about the briefings when he was briefing every night. And there was all this chatter about what are we doing showing these? These are not public health. If anything, some of the messages the president is, you know, this is a president who suggested, you know, not drinking bleach literally, but he suggested like, well, maybe we can, you know, that, that day yeah. that was certainly implied. And that's a public health message that if people take it seriously is dangerous. Yes. And, and here we are broadcasting it, not just that he's propagandizing or praising himself constantly. And, and should he be allowed to do that? Um, I think you look, the traditionalists in the media, and, and there are more of them than, than people who are sitting here saying, like, we shouldn't be doing this, uh, especially in Washington, people who cover these institutions that have been around for a long time and that kind of come with their own user's manual of this is how you cover the presidency. Um, but, you know, I think you, um, you know, with the briefings, he is the president. You know, I, I think back to when his campaign started, I was working at Politico. We had his his speech on in the uh, on the newsroom TVs, and they didn't even turn the volume on. You know, it's like initially people ignored Donald Trump because they said like this isn't serious, and then people started responding to his campaign, and then we started covering him, and now he's president. You know, and it's one thing about giving him free airtime and broadcasting his rallies uh, when he's a candidate, and you're not doing it for the other candidates, but now it's even harder to show that restraint. Uh, because he is the president. And what he says, even if it's sort of uh, contradictory, or obviously just sort of him talking, and it's not all that substantive. Um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, to ignore. And you also know that they will, when you pull away, when networks cut away from those briefings, the White House attacked them and said, look, the news won't even cover this president. You know, this is this is so fraught now. This relationship between the press, <laughs> but it and seems this to White me House. it's a, a reactive relationship. It seems it to is, me that you are is. reacting to him rather than the news media driving the narrative and driving the decisions. And I'm not saying you, as you know, Eli. I'm saying the the news media that you just talked about that is so sort of like this is what we do, and this is the cycle mm -hmm. we're in, and and this is our old school way of looking at things that we you report what the president says because it's important. Um, but the the news media could can change that. They could you know, like like they I agree. could. And they I, could start I think you're generally right. You're generally right that it is reactive more often than not. Um, and there are look, there's been incredible reporting done on this presidency uh, that has not been reactive. We're not always just chasing True. the tennis balls that he's throwing out there. <laughs> um, and you know, but but because he just creates news so constantly, and because. I think just sort of our metabolism in this country now for news is so, you know, what's new, what's, there's just that tendency to fall back on that. And it's frankly easier um, to just report, you know, report back what he's saying yeah. and what's happening. Uh, it's harder to step back. Uh, and, and it's harder to, you know, I think, honestly, if you're going to cover this White House effectively, you have to do both. You can't ignore the day to day because you never know when he'll say something that is newsworthy. Um, you do have to be there. You do have to pay attention. Um, you know, e these briefings that went on for two hours at a time. I mean, it was hard to sit there and be 
you know, continue to be focused. Right. Uh, but you never know when he'll say something. But that can't be the only element of the coverage, right? That has to just be, you have to backstop that and then look for ways to tell more important stories and uh, to pull out things that you're not getting directly uh, from the president to find out what's happening behind closed doors um, and to, you know, report on policy mm. and the implications of policy and things that are happening, you know, in this country affecting real people um, when every day we're, we're chasing tennis balls and reporting whatever Trump has tweeted or said. Uh, and that's what that's what pops up on the news. Right. Meanwhile, you know, lots of things are happening in terms of environmental issues, immigration issues, trade issues. Um, you know, all sorts of things that are taking place. Fair enough. Just, you know, it is a challenge because sometimes the loudest, craziest stuff is, you know, that's what's going yeah, to pop out. That's what's going to hit the airwaves. And that's what people are going to see. So um, I want to end this by talking a little bit about race as it, uh, 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 it relates to the coronavirus and also the political climate. Uh, black people are getting this virus at a higher rate than white people. There are lots of theories about why that is. But I have heard in in many of these, pro well, I, I posted the other day somebody holding a sign at a California protest uh, that, and I think this came from the LA Times, uh, that said, that had a picture of a black man with a muzzle on, and it said something like, we are not slaves, we shouldn't be muzzled. And, um, and it was an incredibly racist sign. Uh, I have heard people say, hey, you know, look, just because some people don't have the physical uh, prowess to fight this virus doesn't mean that we have to be punished, which is also an incredibly racist statement. And, um, and yet I don't see, like, you know, I hear it, I see the signs, but I don't see that kind of like as the headline that mm -hmm. that these protests are driven by race and that may be something that I'm reading into it but I you know I asked a bunch of journalists the other day is this racist and they were like yes what's wrong with you so what how how is this being affected by the racial differences in the coronavirus and the uh view of race from Trump supporters well, I think you touch on something and it's it's difficult to to really explain um, and to say anything with with total certainty about, you know, what is in a, a person's heart when they show up at a protest. Um, but I think, you know, that the, these these protests, when you see people with, you know, heavy you know weaponry showing up at state capitals, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the Tea Party protests that I saw in, the, you know, roughly a decade ago. Um, and, you know, that, the, covering those, I mean, that was also palpable then that they said it was about taxes, but you could tell that there was clearly a sort of, um, you know, a, race, a racial element to it. You know, it was a almost entirely white uh, crowd of people reacting to, you know, the first African-American president. Um, and obviously a lot of this president and the people who take their cues from him, who protests more militantly, show up to his rallies. There is so much white identity politics that is ingrained in Trumpism um, mm. that it is hard not to see that. I think, you know, look, this doesn't start with Donald Trump. You know, we, we, this country has a, a long history 
uh, of this sort of uh, racial division and class division um, and, you know, and, and really sort of racist laws up to a point, racist policies. And so this is, you know, you're, you're certainly not, you know, diagnosing something that that doesn't exist. I think, you know, the the, the virus uh, exposes a lot of inequities in our system, right? When it's when it is affecting people in urban communities, that is largely because a lot of these people live more closely together. There are a lot more people mm -hmm. in a single home. That's because they don't have, you know, they just don't have the means uh, to have sort of single family homes. Um, and uh, the virus spreads more easily in those kinds of environments. Uh, people, those people don't have the same access to healthcare in a lot of cases. And so that's an element. A lot of these people work jobs that they can't sit at home and do Zoom meetings for two months and be fine. They have to go to work and that exposes them further. And so I think there, that is, is obviously a big reason for the disparity and who this is affecting. And I think, you know, the atomization of the country the political division, the what we talked about in terms of the news, sort of cleaving the country into two different camps. And obviously there's a racial dynamic to that as well. You know, that I think explains some of the reaction that you've seen from people also in terms of the us versus them rather than um, a more national unifying response to this. The, you know, Cornell Belcher, who's an African-American pollster uh, who worked for President Obama, we talked to him for the story about this very subject, about you know the grief and people processing and the kind of general lack of empathy uh, for people who were sort of saying, well, it's not affecting my neighborhood, so I don't know why I have to stay home. <laughs> yes. And he said, you know, no, hardly anyone, he said, knew people who died on 9-11, right? There's just 3,000 people. It happened in two places on the East Coast, but he said, you know, back then it wasn't those people, it was all of us. Um, and that's interesting too, because this is actually something that has hit all 50 states, right. obviously to varying degrees, um, but there was more national coming together um, and care for one another, obviously it seemed after 9-11 than what we're seeing now when the response to this uh, is largely driven by politics and these, these conflicting narratives based on um, what lens you're looking through. And it's, it's amazing that something of this scale uh, hasn't really changed sort of our, our attitudes and tendencies, um, you know, on that level. It is amazing. Uh, Eli Stokels is a uh, reporter, a White House reporter for the LA Times. He wrote a piece last week with Noah Bierman about why we are not mourning more during this coronavirus, which has killed more people than the Vietnam War and 9-11 combined at this point. Eli, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Enjoy the conversation. This is Impact, a daily look at how we are coping with the coronavirus in Nevada. I'm Carrie Kaufman, and this Memorial Day, we are talking about grief and why we are not necessarily mourning the deaths, the almost 100,000 people who have died in this country, the way that we have mourned 
other things like 9-11 or mass shootings. You just heard from Eli Stokels, who talked about the atomization of this country and how the response to the virus tracks along the political divisions that have been sown in the last decade or so. Right now, we're going to talk to someone about where those divisions come from and how what drives those divisions also drives how we process grief. Elizabeth Nielsen is a psychology professor at Moorhead State University in Kentucky. Elizabeth, happy Memorial Day. Thank you. You as well. Uh, So yesterday, the nation's attention was caught by the New York Times, which presented a pretty stunning visual uh, of small type names uh, right on their front page. Nothing else on their front page, uh, and then inside, even more pages. And as Eli Stokels just pointed out, we that was about 1,000 people who had died. We are coming up on 100,000 people who have died, and yet we can't really process this the way that we have processed uh, other tragedies that have happened to us in the past, like 9-11, like even the Challenger disaster here in Las Vegas, like the October 1st shooting, where people were walking around just stunned. I, I see people, if I see them walking around at all, um, they're just kind of like going about their business. They may be going about their business with a mask. Increasingly, they are not, which bothers me. But How is it that we are processing this grief differently from other tragedies that we have had? My my guess is is that the psychology answer is as always it depends, Um, (laughs) but I would always always a reliable answer. Um, I think that it likely varies greatly, but can really be conceptualized along a couple of different pathways. The first of which is a broad idea of avoidance. Um, And if you talk to any psychologist um, who's been trained in any of the contemporary theories of psychology, you will hear them talk about this idea that as humans, we are generally designed to avoid pain and discomfort, and that that avoidance can be very adaptive in small doses. And so, for example, if you were to get devastating news before a job interview, it would be very effective to temporarily push those emotions away because you have something you need to do right now. Um, It's possible that some people's grief um, that they're not experiencing right now is what we would kind of call an effective avoidance, where if they are currently in the midst of threat, so if you are somebody who is actively confronted with coronavirus, if you are a frontline worker, if you are somebody who has to um, go out and is constantly at threat or your family is at threat, dealing with that grief right now may not be very effective. It may get in the way of you doing what you need to do to survive. For others who may not be in that position, it's likely falling into what we would more likely kind of think about as less effective avoidance, whereby you're constantly avoiding the emotions associated with it because they are painful and scary. And that that can be very unhelpful long-term because we find that when we are avoiding these things long-term, it is associated with myriad psychological and actually physical health symptoms. Mm -hmm. 
And so I, I would imagine that for some people, this avoidance is short-term quite helpful again, but in the long-term, we are, I think, seeing people who are going about their day, pushing away the, the fear that I feel on a very real level frequently, the sadness um, that comes from knowing that there are people, even if we don't know them, that are dying, um, that are losing people, and that that right now people are choosing to avoid that because it is painful um, and scary for them. We saw at first that people were kind of scared and doing mm-hmm. what they were told and keeping inside. And then there was a whole group of people that started making face masks and uh, and we weren't really sure we were supposed to wear them. And then we were sort of sure that we were supposed to wear them. And that's part of it, right? We're, we're getting different uh, messages from different people, which confuses us and then just makes us throw up our hands. But there definitely has been in the last few weeks this separation. We've gone back to our corners, uh, and it mirrors the political separation we have in this country. You teach and research the psychology of gender. It's occurred to me that the folks who are anti-mask are exhibiting more stereotypical male behavior. Virtue signaling has replaced Nambi as an epithet. The way we as a collective are grieving is also male, it seems to me. Bury it and move on, which researchers say makes PTSD so much worse. Is what I'm seeing correct, and how does that affect the way we grieve in general? So this is profoundly interesting to me, Um, and I will say the timing, I I don't think that you're off base, and I think that there is some data coming in, and there's been several people who have written about this, but there was a study that um, came out, um, I don't believe it's been fully published through peer review yet, but um, it got some coverage this week um, by a researcher out of uh, Middlesex University in London, and Um, a researcher out of Berkeley that was finding that there are these gender differences um, in who is wearing masks and that men were more likely to say that they felt like they would be, um, you know, that wearing a mask had a negative connotation to it, that wearing a mask is shameful, that it is not cool, that it's a sign of weakness and stigma. Um, And that we would say is certainly more consistent with what is understood as this idea of a traditional masculinity ideology or what some people um, at the extreme of which we think of as toxic masculinity or hegemonic masculinity. So this is being put out by our president also, who is refusing to wear a mask. <laughs> like that's, that, I feel like that is, that's the, uh, the theme that, uh, that that he's that's the tune he's playing that gets people to follow him. He's the Pied Piper of masculinity. Well, one thing that I can I can certainly say is that the what's been fascinating about this is that we have actually seen the gender differences in um, the mortality of this, in that it's ironic that while there is this idea of wearing a mask is not cool, if there's a stigma to it, but that men are, have a higher mortality from this virus. That it actually, it's, it's not only not true from a, um, this is all a social construction, but it, it's having these really negative outcomes that I think a lot of researchers are very concerned about 
Um, it also doesn't stop with a mask. We also find that part of the reason why men may be more likely to die from this is that they also are more likely to have pre-existing conditions that dispose them to having greater morbidity and mortality. So like respiratory infections, um, heart disease, and those have also been tied to kind of behaviors and attitudes that are consistent with um, hegemonic masculinity. Okay. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So um, there's, and, and I can speak to this as both a psychologist, I also do a fair bit of health research, but there was a really fantastic um, report that was generated by the American Psychological Association. It came out about two years ago, and they essentially were facing this conundrum, which is that within our culture, boys and men as a group, and of course, this intersects with other identities, so we have to be cognizant of that, but that boys and men tend to hold privilege and power based on gender, and yet they have this disproportionate rates of having poor health outcomes across the board, whether psychological or physical. And so we are trying to understand why that is. And one thing that we understand is that if you are someone who, for whom adhering to very rigid ideas of what it means to be a man, if that is very important to you, and if you are distressed when you don't adhere to those kinds of behaviors, you're less likely to go to the doctor. You're more likely to engage in risk behaviors like substance use, um, that you're more, you're less likely to ask for help for those things. And so we see then that that contributes to men not going to the doctor, to men not necessarily listening as much to their doctor's feedback as they may like, um, and also just engaging in behaviors like substance use. Um, I also study sexual risk-taking that are going to make them more likely to have these negative outcomes. Interesting. Um, so the messages that we are giving boys and men essentially don't actually let lead them to be healthy. How do we change that? Oh, that's, that's a million dollars. <laughs> um, if we could solve that in my lifetime, I feel like we would be in really good shape. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that we have found in the research is that one, and this connects to your question about grief, is that one of the most potent thing, potent aspects of masculinity that I have found in my research is this idea of emotional control and that men are socialized to really only display these kind of power-related emotions, so things like anger. Um, or kind of like hypersexuality, which isn't really an emotion, but kind of gets thought about sometimes along those lines, but that we shame them for emotions that we associate with femininity. So like sadness, um, shame, those kinds of things. And that this leads to men not necessarily expressing their emotions or being able to accept help when they need it. So, one of the best things I think we can actually do, and right now is a perfect opportunity, is to let everyone in our lives, but especially our children, know that it's okay to be scared right now, that it's okay to have a variety of emotions about this, and that their emotions aren't going to hurt them. No one is going to, I say this to almost every client that I work with, I promise you, you will not be the first person to die of having an emotion. <laughs> it may be painful, but you will, we will all get through it together. Right. And I, I, I don't, I mean that in the most literal way possible. Um, but 
what we often see, um, and I had a lot of experiences with this um, in my work with um, male veterans, is that they have all of this socialization to push away all of those emotions and that when you actually drill down past the anger, past the irritability, there is a very profound sense of sadness um, and oftentimes shame about those emotions. Um, and my guess is, is that that is happening right now as well with some people who are choosing not to engage with the grief that we all as a country are facing. One of the things that I've always been fascinated by are, uh, we're talking about men, but many of the protesters that I see uh, who say this is a hoax and we need to get back to work uh, are women who mm -hmm. show this same kind of uh, emotional um, outlook. How does that happen? So I, I'm glad you brought that up because we, we know also that people of all genders um, can potentially engage in this. The way I, and, this, and it's been far less studied um, in um, cisgender um, women, um, but what I do think we have found is that some time ago, I stopped necessarily considering these issues strictly along, you know, men versus women or boys versus girls, but started to consider it about what do we elevate in our society? We elevate things mm -hmm. associated with power and control. We elevate, and those are associated with masculinity, and then we denigrate the things associated with femininity. And you see girls do that from things like saying, oh, I don't, I don't hang out with other girls. I'm not that kind of girl. When you hear women say that, they're oftentimes denigrating things they associate with femininity and therefore saying I'm better because I don't do those things. And so they're essentially aligning themselves with these masculine ideals in an effort, I think, to try to distance themselves from what is less valued in our culture. So as you see the, 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 the differences in the way we are processing grief in this country, um, what are some of the things that we can do from the outside that might change that? I think that if, if you were to ask, I'm putting on my clinician hat right now, what we know is that it's going to be very important for people's mental health to be able to experience the grief that they feel and to have a place to process it. I also think that doing things that are meaningful is incredibly helpful right now. And so if you are someone who is still making masks, that is excellent. And if that's meaningful for you, keep doing that. Um, but the, that is, I think, going to help us feel it, like we can take our grief and do something with it. So well. is it possible that, that the meaningful is for some people going out and protesting and saying that this is all a hoax? What I think actually is fascinating about this is that the if we were to kind of map out from what we understand about masculinity, and let's say we were looking at the people who are out there and protesting, and that if we were to think about where are they tapping in, and again, I haven't interviewed any of them. I'm sure there's lots of internal reasons why people are doing what they're doing, but that much of it, my guess is, is has to do with the idea that they feel like their control is being taken away from them, which is a very control and power is a huge part of masculinity. What I find fascinating is that 
One aspect of masculinity that we don't talk a lot about is this idea of protecting people, that people who oftentimes, when you ask them what does it mean to be a man, they'll often say things like, I want to protect the people that are important to me. And the most, the best way you can actually do that right now is wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that what we would want to understand is, what are you trying to communicate here? And are you, I, I do believe if, that many of them would say they are trying to protect people. And I think it's hard also, we as psychologists talk about how do you change behavior that another person is engaging in that may harm them or others. I mean, I think that many of them are, you know, engaging in something that might harm them. And so our question has to be, how do we talk with that group in a way that doesn't just immediately cause us to yell at each other? Um, because I think we're <laughs> right. I think that's, I think we're going to see that play out yet again um, for the next several months. Um, but try to understand what is that actually doing anything for them? And is that creating meaning in their lives? And what might be a way that doesn't, that actually enables them to protect their family more immediately? But um, is, there might view, be one way though, to do it. is there a view, though, that there's, there's a certain way to protect your family and stepping back and hiding, perhaps, uh, and, and, and hiding your face behind a mask uh, is not the way that they feel comfortable protecting their family? They don't see it as protecting? Possibly. I mean, again, I, I wouldn't, we would have to um, do a fair bit of research and I would, I would love to do that um, to understand what's going on. My guess is yes. I mean, my, I do believe that based on what we're hearing and given the volume of um, weapons that seem to be present right. in a lot of these, um, that there is this idea of there's only one way to protect people. And what I imagine is actually ratcheting up a lot of the intensity of this is that diseases are an enemy you cannot see. You, you cannot put a face on that. There isn't someone you can go beat up. There isn't a country that we can necessarily, you know, say this is, you know, the, the bad guy, although I think we'll probably try, as we have been. Um, but it's hard to put an enemy on this. And so I think what we're also seeing is there is an effort to try and put a face on who the enemy is. And right now I think that in their estimation that is, certain government figures and, um, you know, people who are asked or, or potentially retail um, or managers and yeah. stores saying you have to wear a mask, that then has become the enemy. Elizabeth Nielsen is a psychology professor at Moorhead State University in Kentucky. Elizabeth, we could have this conversation all day. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have a time limit here on this radio show. So thank you for being with me. I appreciate it. I appreciate you all. Another episode of Impact has come and gone. Thanks to Eli Stokels and Elizabeth Nielsen for the interviews. Impact is a co-production of the Nevada Voice and KUNV. You have been listening throughout this show to Mozart's Requiem, one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written. Happy Memorial Day to all of you. We'll be back tomorrow at 7 p.m. You can get this show and previous shows on KUNV.org. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Thank you for listening to Impact.